Hey there, I'm Julie, and this is the Married to Addiction podcast. If you're here, then you're probably what I call my secret sister. We're in a situation we never asked to be in and fighting a battle we never wanted to fight. We're women who are married to an alcoholic, and it affects every inch of our lives. If that sounds like you, then I want you to know that this is a safe place for you to land. Married to Addiction is a faith-based podcast where I'll help you find the tools and strength you need to navigate your husband's addiction without losing yourself in the process. So please subscribe and tune in as often as you're able. Because your husband's recovery is important, but so is yours. Hey there, before we get started today, I just want to make sure that you know about the Secret Sister Circle. This is something that I have just created. It's a brand new membership for my Secret Sisters, meaning other wives of alcoholics, that I really would love to have you join me in. It basically is a path to take you from being where you're at right now, which if you're like me, you're probably in the middle of feelings of hopelessness and despair and confusion, um, just not really knowing what to do, where to turn and feeling like there's no end in sight. So I wanted to create kind of a journey for you to get you from that place into the restoration and wholeness that I know you can have in your life. Uh, even as the wife of an alcoholic. So the whole vision for the membership is to get you off the emotional roller coaster of having an alcoholic spouse and just feeling like you're at the mercy of that day after day. We'll help you work through learning exactly what you can do to improve things instead of just feeling like you have to sit around and hope and pray that things are going to change someday. And also it helps you feel not so alone because you'll have a community of other sisters who are going through the same things that you are. So bottom line, if you need support and direction through the day-to-day struggle of being the wife of an alcoholic, then this membership is absolutely for you. I would absolutely love for you to join me. You can just go to my website, marriedtoaddiction.com and look for the tab that says Secret Sister Circle. I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the Married to Addiction podcast. Today, I'm super excited because this is actually the first time that I have had a guest on the podcast. I would like to introduce you to Dawn Ward. Um, Dawn and I have talked a couple of times before this because she has an addiction story, just like I do. She is from Faith to Flourish and also Christian Moms of Addicted Children. So first off, welcome, Dawn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. to be here. Good. I'm excited to talk to you. So can we just start by you telling us a little bit about your story and how addiction has impacted your life? Yes, thank you very much. Again, thank you for having me. Well, the interesting thing about my addiction story is that it has impacted all of the major men in my life. So my father, I began with having an alcoholic father, and I was raised in an alcoholic home. And while he was a functioning alcoholic, most people did not know what was going on behind closed doors. They knew he was a drinker, but they didn't realize the impact it had on us as a family and as a child. And so as I grew up and got married myself, I determined I was going to do everything in my own power to make sure that it did not come through my front door and become a part of my life because I I had enough pain as it was already being now an adult child of an alcoholic. And so the first the first person that we struggled with addiction in our home was actually my husband and we wouldn't have looked at it like an addiction because he had had so many 
back surgeries and one surgery ran into the next surgery. So he was on pain pills a lot. And no sooner would he, you know, get to that point where he was trying to get off his pain pills, he would have another surgery. And these were all the result of car accident and, and um, some injuries that had, had taken place. And so when he was being giving, given these pills, we did not know that they were addictive. Uh, at that time, you know, the big pharmacy uh, company, big pharmaceutical companies were not letting people know they were not being exactly honest about the risks involved with taking opiates. And so we would just notice that he was having a hard time getting off of them. But he didn't have that mind that was an addicted, like personality, as we would call it. And so we just looked at it like it was one of those medications that was making him sick. His pain was getting worse. And we didn't realize that the two, the, the drugs were actually causing that problem. So that was something that was going on. It really began to take over our life because we could not, you know, leave town if he didn't have enough medication. And so each time an accident, or not an accident, a surgery would occur, then they would put him back on these, but put him on a stronger medication because the ones from before didn't work. And so that really was something where now that I look back, I see how it influenced his mood. I see how it you know, affected his level of pain and trying to keep that pain under control. And I realized that we really were living in addiction without knowing it. And that went on for numerous years. I would say the first surgery, probably we've been married 40 years. And that first surgery probably started about 20 years ago. So the first time I would say that I knew I had an addict in the house, though, if you, you know, somebody who was, a, was truly addicted was my middle son. And this was his final year of high school. And I had noticed some behavioral changes and the hair growing, you know, growing his hair out and he dyed it dark. And he was normally an A student and, you know, been raised in Christian school and all of that. And I just didn't see that. I never thought in a million years he was addicted to something. I thought maybe he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Maybe he had gotten involved with marijuana. I didn't know anything about drug tests or anything like that. Until one day he came and came home and said, dad, can I talk to you? And he took my husband upstairs and come to find out what he thought he was smoking marijuana. It turned out that he had been given black tar heroin. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. So my son went right from, you know, just being out of Christian school into a public high school, wrong friends. And, you know, these kids thought they knew what they were doing and turned out they were they were addicted to heroin. And yeah, and that was a very scary thing to find out. I mean, I just went, you know, from zero to 100 instantly with fear, with panic. Everything that rose up in me was just like the H word. Are you kidding me? It's the H word. And I thought there's no, no one survives this. You know, no one survives a heroin addiction. Everyone eventually ends up dead. I mean, these were the thoughts that went in, into my head. He wasn't injecting, but um, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. You don't, when you find out your kids are dabbling in drugs, it's usually like marijuana or something like that. But nowadays it's such, they're such dangerous drugs. Right. This was about, uh, he's 32 now and this was, he was 17. So this was about 15 years ago. So now we're really, something's going on here, Right. And we're dealing with his addiction, don't know what to do. I work for physicians. I asked for help. I asked where to send him. 
And, you know, of course, I was going to send into the best that insurance would pay for. And I always say he went to the equivalent of like the Lindsay Lohan, you know, treatment center because they were teaching him yoga and he was doing, you know, um, all this mindfulness and he was, you know, getting great food and had a private room and all of that. And, hey, we're going to conquer this. We're going to beat this. We caught this early. He came and asked us for help. We're going to get this. And, you know, little did I know that it wasn't going to be that easy. And especially with a 17 year old who thinks they have it all figured out. So, yeah, we had a, a bit of a process there where, you know, the after a few weeks of being in there, they put him into outpatient and he relapsed right away. And as much as we were trying and spending money with counselors and everything, eventually I did have to. Well, he he went into rehab on his 18th birthday. And so he became a man child, you know, all of a sudden I had to sign for everything and pay for everything, but I didn't have certain rights to his medical records or anything unless he signed off on those. And so he decides, you know, he's a big boy now. He doesn't need to stay in the program. He's 18. He lets his counselor know, I don't want to stay in the program and he's out. So, but there he's home with us and we've got all these rules and all these boundaries and, you know, he's not abiding by any of them. So eventually we did, I did have to ask him to leave. You know, there was a, there was a, a period there where it wasn't working to have him at home. And it, I could not have even done that without God's strength because, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe that I was actually doing that, that my son was actually being told to leave the house. Yeah. And so thank the Lord, it didn't take very long. And um, our counselor just kept, you know, walking us through the process of mom, he's a good kid. You know, he's got a good head on his shoulders. You've taught him well, but he has to work through this process. You cannot bring him home too soon. If you bring him home too soon, you're going to be back to square one again. So by the grace of God, he did within a few weeks call and ask for help. I think he slept on the park bench a few times. I think he stayed, you know, he couch surfed a few times and the counselor, well, really the straw that broke the camel's back is when I turned off his cell phone. When I turned off his cell phone because he wasn't using it for the right reasons, uh, that is when he called and said, you know, mom, why'd you turn off my cell phone? And I'm like, because you're not answering my calls and you're using it for the wrong reasons. And the, uh, I said, call your counselor. And he called his counselor and we did an intervention. And uh, just by the grace of God, you know, he went to a really, wasn't an easy program. It was a faith-based program. And uh, it was, he dug a couple holes in the process, which sounds terrible, but actually it helps him work off steam when they're breaking rules and all of that. Nothing, nothing mean, you know, but gives him some time to think. Yeah. And then he went to a good faith-based kind of like dual diagnosis type program after he got out of there that worked with him on some of the some of the reasons why he maybe started using in the first place, even if he didn't realize what he was using. And the Lord just really worked in his life and through his hard work and through the grace of God, he's now been free from drugs for, I would say about 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a wonderful, you know, he's a wonderful testimony yes. and we're, we're very grateful. He's married. He has, he's a, um, a physician's assistant now. And, you know, and I think with him, it was a different story. I, th I think that's what we're going to talk about a little bit was he really got in the, into drugs the old fashioned way. You know, he was very talented musician. Him and his friends were, you know, had a garage band and, you know, thought it would be cool to smoke pot. And then, you know, in our town, 
even pot was laced with black tar heroin. So it was just a way to get the kids addicted. So a lot of his reasoning for getting into drugs wasn't that he had like some mental health issues behind it or anything. And so I think that, you know, the 12-step programs and Celebrate Recovery programs like that were very helpful to him. And then I think his counseling was very applicable also because it gave him the tools that he needed. And so I think in that case, you know, it was very, very helpful to him because when it all came down, it wasn't um, that he needed to have a mental health issue treated. Right. And yes, and so, we are. We're definitely going to talk about that. Because, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because that yeah. that's a big, a big part of what I want to get across to people today is sometimes those 12-step programs are are the perfect thing for that person. Right. Sometimes they're not though. And you yeah, had right. you have another child who also struggled with addiction and his story was different. Is that right? Yes. So this is my oldest son. Now my oldest son uh always said he would never use drugs and would even beat his brother up when he thought he was using drugs because of what he was doing to me. You're like, you're hurting our mom, you're hurting our dad. And he'd be like yelling at him and, and telling him he was a loser and all this. And he never in a million years thought that he would end up addicted. Right. And what happened with him was he was already an adult. He was already um, almost graduated from college, I believe, or, or graduated from college. And he had a congenital uh, issue with his stomach that required a major stomach surgery and they were giving him liquid you know vicodin and giving it to him just in gallons really because of the extent of the surgery and he got addicted to the pain medications and that's when we really started to see here's my husband with his pain pills and these pain pills are disappearing and i think my husband's taking too many and it turns out it's my son that's stealing them from his dad and all this is going on and so what happened with him was when we found, so what happened with him was, of course, as the pain pills ran out, he ended up on the black tar heroin also. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's what happened with him because, you know, you didn't have access to the pain pills anymore. And of course the expense and all of that. And, but ultimately what we found out through the process of his, you know, getting treatment was that I thought, well, I'll just duplicate what I did with the, with my uh, middle son. And we'll just do it again. We'll just, you know, it, it should just be easy because we've learned so much. We know so much. Uh, let's just move forward. But none of that was working with him. And come to find out, he had really struggled with depression and anxiety. He was the class clown growing up because, you know, he liked comedy and laughter and everything. But it was how he compensated for the insecurity and the depression and anxiety and just not feeling normal in his head. And he said that he would have been a drinker. He actually calls himself, he says, first and foremost, he was an alcoholic because he would have been a drinker, except that because of the stomach problem that he had, he couldn't hold down alcohol. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what happened was by taking, he figured out when he took the pain pills or smoked the heroin, then he could go out and party with his friends and look normal, mm -hmm. you know, be able to drink, act normal and all of this because, so he was really taking a lot of stuff. And then we really realized that he had some mental health issues in the process of going through some of these programs. And he began to see a psychiatrist. He was diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety. And, but 
even even some panic attacks and some social anxiety as well. But over time, the medications that they were giving him weren't beneficial because I don't think he had the right diagnosis. So there was a period there when he was diagnosed with bipolar, but the bipolar medication combined with now he's addicted to Xanax, which is really his drug of choice, was causing him to actually become worse in the area of anxiety and depression. And so then we did have some uh, suicide attempts and, you know, hospitalization in psychiatric wards and a lot of things I was totally unprepared for because I didn't know what was medication. I didn't know if he had, you know, was bipolar. Sometimes it doesn't really reveal itself till their late teens, early 20s. So we didn't know if that was it. And we did find out as they, as we finally got him into a good dual diagnosis um, treatment center, faith-based treatment center in Arizona, that they started peeling back the layers of what medications he was on and come to find out that some of these medications were causing hallucinate, you know, hallucinate, um, hallucinations and causing um, psychosis. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, you know, there were imaginary people and all these different, and, and I'm just sitting there scratching my head because I, you know, at this point we didn't know what was mental illness, what was medication, what was spiritual, right. because there could be some of that in there too. And, you know, so it, so what we learned from our first son, a more of a tough love approach uh, to uh, some behavioral issues that were of rebellion, that was, a, it, we had to take a different approach with our son who had mental health issues. Right. And that's, that's really the main thing that I want to be the takeaway for this episode. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more, but um, you know, my, my story is very similar with my husband. Like he, he told me throughout his addiction when it was the absolute worst, there's something else wrong. And he, mm-hmm. he's like, there's been something else wrong for years. I just don't know what it is. I, you know, I have no idea, but there's something else wrong. Like I'm drinking because being in my head is so uncomfortable that I can't function just, you know, sober just in my head and sober. And so Mm -hmm. same thing with him. He went to a dual diagnosis treatment center and was diagnosed bipolar on top of the addiction. And it wasn't really until that was addressed and treated that he could get the addiction under control because there was that underlying issue. So what we're mainly going to talk about today are, are, you know, those layers that there's the physical aspect of it, Um, you know, the obvious way that the alcohol or the drugs are affecting you physically and the physical act of drinking, using, et cetera. But there's also, you know, the potential for mental things happening. And then also, like you said, the spiritual layer too. So I really want for us to kind of go through those things just so that we can kind of let anyone out there know who may be in the same situation that you were in, you know, well, why isn't treatment working? You know, why isn't regular mm-hmm. old treatment working? Why has, why does he keep popping in and out of rehab? If there's something else going on under the surface, that's probably never going to work long-term. That's right. Because I, I and I think about that, uh, put ourselves in the position of being in a constant state of deep depression. I mean, my son attempted suicide twice. Imagine what that must feel like, what their mental state of mind must be. And I've had one 
one occurrence in my life where I think I can tap in a little bit to that level of depression and hopelessness. And it is when I had postpartum depression with my first son. And it came out of nowhere. And I was like, what is this? I mean, I would have thoughts where this baby would be better off without me. I'm the worst mom in the world. All I do is cry all day. And no, no amount of quoting scripture and praying was getting me out of it. What held Jesus held me during that time. But also what held me was I kept telling myself, you weren't like this before you had the baby. Right. And so, you know, something is lying to you. Something, these emotions are lying to you. So I had that little bit of fragment of, of um, faith that said to me, things are going to get better. But, and slowly, slowly, they started to get better. But if you lived in it constantly for months and years on end, and you grew up feeling that way, and you always felt like you just didn't, you know, not just that you didn't fit in, but like, this doesn't feel normal. This doesn't, this can't be how a brain should feel. This is not how a body should feel. I think that unless we have any way to connect with that and understand that level of depression or anxiety, it would be easy to, oh, just pray about it or, you know, just memorize some scripture. And I'm not, and trust me, I, I, I love the word of God. I've been a Christian many, many years and he's carried me through all of this. But if I had only offered that to my sons or to my husband and not said, let's look at what's really going on here and then been supportive of whatever that was. And, and the way that I was able to feel more comfortable with that once I got past shame and guilt and self-condemnation and all the things that go with being the mother of not one, but two addicted children uh, was I remembered that Jesus healed people in so many different ways right. and he never cookie cuttered it. Right. And he taught his disciples and followers to be very attentive to what the needs of each individual person was. Some people needed forgiveness of sins. Some needed healing. Some, they would say, well, why is he, why is he paralyzed him or his parents sin? And they, and Jesus says, neither. This was so the son of man could be glorified. And so I look at this and I say, Lord, we don't always understand why some people are born and they, you know, their brains don't feel right. Mm -hmm. Same way their body doesn't feel right. Uh, we don't always understand that, but we know that you love them and you care about them and they just, you know, they have to know that there's hope. Absolutely. And, and that there's help. Right. And that you don't have to think that there's never going to be any help because there is help and help comes in all different, from all different directions and in all different forms. Right. And I'm so with you on, you know, what you were saying about the spiritual component of it, because that is so critically important. And, you know, that played a part in my husband's recovery as well. But like you said, if that was the only thing, like if I was just telling him he needed to pray harder <laughs> or read right. his Bible more, I mean that, you know... It, if it was that easy, he wouldn't have been in the position that he was in. So while that was a component of it, that wasn't all of it. Like the other That's things right. needed to be addressed too. So with the the mental illness, that can definitely be an underlying issue. But I want, um, you know, and, and if anybody listening has had a loved one who's gone in and out of treatment and just really is continuing to struggle, that might be a conversation for, you know, your loved one to have with a doctor or a mental health professional. Because like I said, if there's something underlying that needs to be addressed, but over and above that, there's still the brain changes that happen 
you know, even even if you don't have mental illness, when you're when you're drinking or using on a regular basis, that's changing your brain. It's physically it changing is. your brain, which is changing mm-hmm. your behaviors, which is changing, you know, the person that you are and your personality. So I'm sure you noticed some of that also with your family too, right? I did. With going back to my uh, middle son and being totally green and not having any idea what was going on, you know, just being clueless. What I noticed with him was more uh, behavioral issues like what appeared to be ADD, uh, an inability to remember things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a lot of short-term memory loss. And where I could tell that really it wasn't just that he was pretending that I didn't tell him something, but really he didn't remember it. Right. And so impulse control was a big issue. And so when the Lord started to work in his life, we, I saw him recover, his brain recover very quickly. Oh, wow. Now, remember, he was 18, then 19, you know, as he was going through his healing. And I was praying so hard for him because I knew how intelligent he was. And I said, Lord, and he would say to me, Mom, you know, he went back to school and he'd say, Mom, it's just so hard for me to learn. I can't retain it. Oh, he was wow. always such a sharp, such a sharp, quick learner. And I was praying for him. And one day I was just, Lord, you know, he's so smart. You've gifted him. He messed up. He messed up big time. Uh, but he's trying and I'm just asking for his healing. And the Lord just instantly, like I heard, I felt him speak to me. He said, I've, I've healed his brain. Oh, wow. So if his brain wasn't sick, it wouldn't have needed healing. Right. Exactly. When I, yes. And I saw that, I saw that change take place very quickly where all of a sudden he was coming home from, cause he had gone back to college and everything and he was coming home and I was being blown away by what he was talking about, you know, like how sharp his brain was. And, and that was, you know, it was very soothing to me to know that he was at that point where he now could move forward and in what mattered because he was accepted to medical school, he ended up changing his mind, but, um, and going to PA school, but, you know, he just had this incredible level of intelligence. And I, I saw that he had his brain back. But each time they relapse, and sometimes these relapses go longer, and they, you know, maybe use more drugs, mm-hmm. because the drug amount that they used before doesn't do it for them anymore, or they start mixing drugs and things like that. They, you know, they're continuing to, there's, they're continuing to have more of a decline in their brain. Right. Totally. And, and it can take a while for them for that brain to heal. The very cool thing about it is they're looking at addiction, you know, because there's a lot of questions about which came first, you know, do they have a disease? Is it a brain processing, um, neurocognitive type thing? And there's all the, all kinds of new studies out there, but one of the, the very hopeful studies, and we, I can actually say this in my own family is that the brain knows how to kind of rewire itself. So if somebody were to have a traumatic brain injury or that type of a thing, a lot of times other parts of that brain will take over. And so I do want to encourage people that are very worried about my kid will never be the same. You know, they're seeing flying zombies and all of this. And trust me, my son, some of the things he saw and heard, I, I was like, you know, this is either his brain is fried or this is demonic. Like it was, it had to be one or the other because it was just so shocking. And now he's, 
you know, my oldest son is also doing well. He's in recovery right now. And he's using medication assisted recovery this time because he had a recent relapse a few months ago after almost two years. And so he is using um, the Vivitrol shot that he gets once a month to help him with his cravings. Yeah. And so again, like I said, I used to be kind of opposed to all this. And sometimes some of the programs like AA and some of those will say you're either 100% substance free, no uh, antidepressants, you know, none of that at all, or you're not really clean. And so, you know, but I think nowadays there's more tools in their toolbox. Right. Absolutely. And whichever tool they need to use and whichever tool that, you know, through prayer and, and um, good counseling that they use that will help them, we should be grateful for. Yes. Because the longer that they go without drugs, the more time their brain does have to heal. I'm not saying that, you know, I don't know for sure if they'll get 100% healing. I don't know any of that, but I personally have seen that improvement. Right. For and, sure. even with my, and even with my husband, you know, who didn't have mental health issues, um, wasn't voluntarily, you know, trying to get high. He wasn't getting high at all. He was just taking pain pills enough to manage his pain. And they were doing a very poor job of that at the end. But I saw, you know, more depression in him. He's a very easygoing guy. I saw more agitation in him during the time that he was taking all of that. And over time, you know, once he got off of it, then he became his old self again. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I think a lot of times, you know, with, with hus the husband and wife relationship in particular, I think a lot of times, you know, we don't, we don't know that we don't know that they literally, their brain has changed. Their personality is different right. because of right. the drinking. It's not, you know, necessarily, and this is, is not to make an excuse for, you know, toxic or poor behavior in any way, shape yeah. or form. However, there is, there are some things that are happening that are changing that personality. You know, it's, it's right. because of the addiction, it's because of the drinking. And I think that's an important thing for, for people to know that, you know, there's, there's some of that that is 100% because they're using too much or they're drinking too much. That's right. And so with my older son, he basically has had to have a lot more hands on he hasn't had that opportunity to be just kind of like free from it. And, you know, it's been, it's a constant maintenance program for him. And we all have to watch it. For instance, he lives out of state. He lives in a smaller town, a quieter environment, which is really good for him. But his girlfriend and his family still live here in Las Vegas. And when he comes to Las Vegas, you know, it's like this light bulb thing goes on the second he crosses state line. And you know, he just becomes a little more agitated, a little more nervous energy. And so we're constantly checking that with him when he's here. Right. Because even a change of environment or going back to his old stomping grounds is enough to cause his, his mood and the way he thinks, the way he sees things to adjust a little bit. And so I think, you know, that's also very important too, is that you recognize, you know, are they sleep deprived? Are they, are they, you know, stressed out at work? Mm -hmm, for sure. So it can be things that are related to the drugs and it can be the normal things that they go through, that we all go through in life that also wear us down. For sure. And I like that you mentioned that, you know, for, for him, it's more almost like a management. And I think that that's the case, you know, with my husband as well, because, you know, people think, 
And this does happen. Like it sounds like this happened with with your other son. You know, people get sober and then that's it. They're free from it. That's it. But for a lot of people, particularly people that are having, you know, mental health underlying issues, those those bad days can become triggers for using. And so you have to kind of know if that's what you're dealing with also in recovery because, you know, like same thing you said, like if my husband doesn't get enough sleep or if he's not taking care of himself physically or whatever, like I notice those feelings start creeping back in where he starts, you know, getting a little bit quiet and more moody. And, you know, he he does have days where he just says, I just am in a funk, you know, And, and it's because there's there's that underlying thing going on, even though it's been managed and he's been through recovery, it's still there, you know, and it, you can't just pretend like it's not and that it's just gone and will never rear its ugly head again. So that's an important point for sure. It really is. So I also wanted to talk about the physical aspect of this. So we talked about the mental, uh, you know, potential for underlying things and, and all of that. But with the physical aspect too, this definitely comes into play. And you already kind of touched on that. If Addicts and alcoholics are not taking care of themselves physically, which clearly they're not. They are so depleted of nutrition and their body is so void of any sort of, you know, amino acids and feel good things and all of the stuff that keep us balanced because it's so tapped out, first of all, by the stuff that they're using that's taxing their body in general, but also because they're not taking care of themselves or refueling themselves on top of it. So I don't think that the physical side of this really gets enough attention or really any attention. You know, if, if somebody is, even in the best case scenario and not addicted, if somebody is not eating right and not taking care of themselves physically in any way, shape or form, they're going to get sick just without addiction on the table. So if you think about the fact that these people are also putting poison in their body day after day after day, Mm -hmm. they are physically like they have nothing left, which also then affects your mental capacity too. So that's, I think that's just a really important point, you know, and, and how do, how do we make sure that they are taking care of themselves? We really can't, I don't think, but that's something to be mindful of that, you know, they're also physically depleted because addiction also, you know, takes its toll on you that way as well. I think that's a, one of the, so one of my, my, uh, I'm going to go back a little bit on this. My middle son was not a big fan of AA and he was not a big fan of AA because at that time, which was 15 years ago, and I don't really you know, know, know exactly where they're at now, but I know that he had to get up and say, you know, my name is, and I'm an addict. And he felt for him that that label and saying that to himself every day was hindering him being able to move forward and not see himself as an addict, but see himself as, you know, just a healthy guy, fit guy. Yeah, he'd had this struggle, but he'd overcome it. Uh, with Jesus help. And so I think he'd like to celebrate recovery program a little bit better because they would say I'm a victorious overcomer or whatever. They would say things like that, that would help him. Right. And so for his mindset, that helped a lot. The reason I'm talking about the physical side of it is because they do need to be accountable to somebody. And it, because if not, if they just say, I'm not going to, I don't feel like going to the gym today, I'm going to sleep in or, and all of a sudden now they're not taking care of, they're not eating right, or they're not checking the fact that they're 
uh, tired, you know, and that they're not getting enough sleep, but they don't want their wife or their mom to be the one nagging them. Right. That's when it's super important that they have somebody that they're, that they're talking to that can help them just, you know, just to say, Hey, I'm a little bit concerned about this or how are you doing in this area? So the one thing I love about AA is that they do have the sponsors and they do have that person that they can pick up the phone and call when they are having a rough day. If, if they'll use that's another tool in the toolbox. Right now, my oldest son has really liked AA not that he likes to go to the meetings that much, as much as he's like the friendships that he's made and the accountability that he's, that he's had and the fact that he can talk to people who are going through the same thing as him. And so again, I will at times, if I see things going on with him, say, hey, have you talked to your sponsor lately? Because his, spo- his sponsor's a Christian and loves the Lord. And so, you know, they can talk about faith, they can talk about physical, and then they can talk about the spiritual, and they can talk about the mental and the emotional, because they're both Christians. And so uh, he says, Oh, yeah, I do. I talk to him regularly. So that kind of gives me a little extra layer of uh, peace of mind, too, because I know that, you know, he is talking to someone. Yes. But if they shut down there, that's, that's so key to all the other physical things they need to do. And so with both of my sons, of course, being younger guys, they wanted to work out. They wanted, you know, they wanted to get this stuff out of their body. They wanted to, so they almost kind of go the other extreme where they're exercising and eating right and doing all of that. And when they're doing all those things, it does help their bodies to heal more quickly from what they've been through when they were using the drugs. Yeah, for sure. And that's just another thing that I don't think we really think about when somebody that we love is struggling. You know, like we talked about, we don't think about the fact that they ha- they're they having changes in their brain. We don't think about the fact that their body is just empty of everything good for the most yeah. part. And that I'm sure is a very, very difficult way to go through life. And, you know, a lot of times they're trying to still hold down a job and everything else. And it's yeah. just... I mean, it, I, I can't imagine it must be just a terrible struggle. But adi- yeah, in addition, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's kind of the beauty of some of the longer, you know, uh, residential type recovery programs or faith-based programs is often they will go that six months a year. Right. And as much as you know, sometimes our, in your case, maybe the spouse is working like my dad, you know, my dad was always functioning, but really could have used some time away to get his brain more balanced again and kind of get his body healed. And he just never would go into a program. But the beauty of those programs is that it does give their, them some time for their bodies to balance themselves back out again, to begin to heal from what they've been through. And I know it's not always, you know, it's not always practical for some people to be gone longer, but I do think, you know, especially if they're getting that spiritual reinforcement, encouragement, and that discipling, that that does help too. And in some cases, just these 30-day programs are just not going to be enough for a lot of people. Right. Yeah, that's a good point because the longer you can be in that environment and, you know, like you said, the longer that you're healing your body, the more likely you are to have success once you're you're out, which is important. So Mm -hmm. the last um, layer that I wanted to talk about is the spiritual layer. And we touched on this a little bit, but the struggle, the spiritual struggle, I mean, I know that I went through my own spiritual struggle, and I'm sure you did as well, just because of what we went through. And, you know, I had anger at God and questioning why, why my family, why is this happening? You know, I've been a Christian my whole life, too. I've been in the church. Like, why? 
Mm-hmm. And so that happens on our side. But then I know from the the alcoholic or the addict side, they have a whole nother spiritual struggle with guilt and shame and feeling so far from God because they're embarrassed and they feel like God, you know, probably doesn't even love them anymore because they're a terrible person, quote unquote, or however they're labeling themselves. Like I know that, you know, my husband dealt with some of that too. Like he just, he felt so far from God when in fact, that's the time that he needed him the most. So how, I mean, how did that look in your situation? Did your family go through the same thing? They really did. And I think when you well, first of all, when we, we, you know, raised our children in a Christian home and we, they went to Christian school. And so they were taught, you know, drugs are bad, stay away from drugs. And they were never going to use drugs. And when they both fell into using drugs, and then my husband finds out that basically he's addicted to drugs and he actually had to go on to like just a, a very short, like one month Suboxone is what his doctor gave him to get him off of them. And then now, no matter what, he just won't touch them, no matter how much pain he's in. But each one of them had their own reasons for feeling guilt and shame. And, you know, whatever that was. And the biggest thing was, I think everyone believed that if they had enough faith, it never would have happened. Mm. Or if they had enough faith, they would just get over it. Why can't they just get over it? And I think that in some ways is the church's fault. And what I mean by that is when we don't understand something and we throw, you know, scriptures or cliche type thinking after that, we're doing a, you know, we're doing that person a disfavor. We really are because if we don't, if we can't even begin to understand it or relate, it might be one, a situation where we just need to love and encourage and pray. Right. And uh, understand that God is going to put other people in that have been in that situation who have walked in your shoes into their, you know, into your life to help you understand and help get you through it. So we don't always have to have all the answers because it would be like me trying to talk to somebody who has maybe struggled their entire life with, um, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome or something. And I could be throwing all these vitamins and all these things at them, but I might not really understand what they're going through and what it's like to get up every morning and just try to get out of bed. Right. And same thing with somebody who's been dealing with mental health issues their entire life. It's, you know, until we, unless we've experienced it, God can give us empathy to, and compassion to love them and care for them. But we might not be the best person to be trying to help counsel them out of that or through it. Right. And I think that's a lot of times, you know, people just in exasperation, you know, they, they're they they're closed off to a lot of friends and family a lot of time because they have shame and guilt for themselves. Right. But I think a lot of times they think, well, maybe if I just go talk to my pastor. But then like you said, you know, he's coming from a great perspective, but not necessarily the best understanding if he's not had this, you know, touch his own life personally, because there is no one. And I know now for a fact, like the way that I used to think about people who are addicted and people who are married to people who are addicted and all of that is like completely different from how I do now. And it's just because I didn't know any better, you know, and it's not, it's not something that you can know until you've gone through it. And so it's not because they're, not trying to be helpful. It's just, it's very difficult to really truly be helpful in the way that somebody needs it. If you can't 100% identify with how they feel. 
And that's what I think, that's why we have a body of Christ, right? Because in a body, they all have different functions. And so the Lord is going to know what part of that body you need help, you know, from. And that's, so the church is a wonderful place to come for healing, but it just depends on which floor you need to be on. Do you need open heart surgery? What is it that you need? Exactly. Um, and so the church having good resources in place is, is very important that they at least have referrals to, you know, counselors that specialize in this, maybe some programs with that they can at least get the person directed that way. But the spiritual side of things that I would want to, that I would like to talk about to the, the wives that are listening and anyone who happens to be listening today is that we need to ask ourselves, what is it going to take for me to feel like I'm okay? Am I going to feel okay and feel like God loves me and God sees me and God knows and understands what I'm going through and that he's willing to carry me through anything if my loved one is never better? If my husband continues to decline or he drinks himself literally to death, or if my my uh, child's next use of heroin and fentanyl ends up in his death, am I going to be in a place where I know that God loves me? Wow, that's a hard question with, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Am I going to be able to release the shame, the guilt, the sense overweighted sense of responsibility that somehow or another, if I say the right thing or I quote the right scripture or I pray hard enough or I have enough faith, am I willing to just release all of those actions, all that doing to God and just be Mm. and know that I'm loved just because I'm his child, not because I said or did or handled the situation perfectly, who could? Right. I mean, the stuff that's thrown at us in, in my Christian Moms of Addicted Children group, what I see some of them go through, you know, is just heartbreaking and the loss of their children. And some of these mothers have lost two and three children to addiction. Oh my gosh. Like numbers that just blow my mind. And I don't even know how they come back. And other than the grace of God, And that is one thing that we can offer our addicted loved one is we can offer them God's grace because we know that his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness are immeasurable and they're for everyone. That's right. That none of us is more righteous or has earned it more than, you know, the person that is in the, in the alleyway with the needle stuck in their arm. My sin of pride, my sin of judgmentalism, my sin of lack of trust, you know, of um, self-sufficiency, those things, those are definitely as equal in God's eyes as the sin that somebody has chosen to, um, you know, maybe commit a life of crime. Right. Right. And and I do want to talk a little bit about that because I am a little concerned, I'm more than a little concerned about the direction the church is going spiritually, it's as though they have in some, some mindsets, especially some of these quote unquote Christian treatment centers and things like that, that they've separated the addiction from the physical side of addiction from the spiritual side as though, as, as though it's an either or. And what I see with that is that even with, there's a risk, there's a risk of, a, of the mindset, even within AA that 
God is kind of like, pick your higher power and he's going to come along for the ride. And, you know, you, he's going to, he's going to be there to cheer you on and all this, but he's not going to make any demands of you. Right. And, but the reality is, is that Jesus led a life of self-sacrifice. He led a life of dying to his flesh. And that was demonstrated even in 40 days and nights, you know, without food or water in the desert, that he was learning to say no to those bodily desires and cravings that really he thought, you know, like any of us would die if we didn't have food or water. And yet he was saying no to those things to have power over the flesh, you know, that the spirit has power over the flesh. And I think sometimes we don't offer that hope to the person who's addicted because we basically say you have a disease you're going to have this disease for the rest of your life there's no getting over it but god can help you through it right and that you know again we're not talking about mental health issues we're not talking about actual like bipolar and these these chemical brain imbalances we're not talking about that we're talking about the person believing that there's no way they can ever be victorious through Christ over addiction. Yeah, that's a great point. And I went, I was discussing that with you with my middle son because that was hard, that was hindering him from moving forward that mindset. And so spiritually, one of the things that I do challenge our mothers with is that the, the Ten Commandments, for example, they they've never been, you know, revoked. Jesus didn't come and say, those don't count anymore. Those don't matter anymore. You don't, you know, you, it's okay if you're addicted to drugs. You can lie. You can cheat. You can steal. You can commit adultery. You can murder. He never gave permission for us to do those things based on what was going on in our life. Right. And so when I get back to talking about some of my concerns about even within the Christian mindset is that they have now, instead of calling those sin anymore, they call them the symptom of their disease. Yeah. And I'm see, and I'm seeing more and more of this being a symptom because they have no control over it. And you're right, they don't. When they're under the influence of drugs, they don't have any control over anything. But the truth of the matter is is that it's still a sin. Right. Lying is still a sin and it still separates us from God and it still hurts other people. Murder is still a sin, regardless of whether you were completely, that, that person was completely blown out of their mind on drugs and thought that their mother was an alien and killed her. Right. And that kind of stuff happens under the influence of drugs. In God's eyes, that's not a symptom of a disease. That's still murder and it's still a sin. And so where I feel that we need to speak truth with grace, but we need to speak truth because a lot of times what I'm seeing is that that's for fear of them feeling shame or feeling guilt, we're not offering grace. And so we're saying, well, we can't really say, you know, yeah, I know you, my son, how many times did you lie to me? How many times did you get in my wallet and steal money? And if I just said, well, you couldn't help yourself. And I just brushed it off instead of saying, uh, you know, son, that really hurt me. And it was a sin against God. And he says, you know, mom, I shouldn't have done it. And I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And then goes and asks God's forgiveness. Right. And there's healing in that. The Bible says, confess your sins one to another that you will be healed. That's true. And, and so 
my challenge and, and the purpose of the Faith to Flourish is not to in any way make people feel more condemnation. But when the Lord, when they come to you and they say, you know, and, and I know AA does teach like restitution and it teaches, um, you know, that they should make amends. When that person comes and they say, I realize I've hurt you. Don't poo poo it. You know, don't just like brush it off and go because there's a spiritual component there that can transform and bring healing through that release and that forgiveness. But we've been, we're so afraid to kind of touch that because, you know, we now believe that, you know, this is a disease and they can't help it. But it, I believe that there's true healing that will come if the church will learn how to disciple these recovering alcoholics and addicts through that process so that they can really get to that point where they feel connected to God again. They feel free from the condemnation and the guilt that they're carrying around. Right. Plus the fact if we're not, you know, if we're, if we're acting like, well, everything's okay because you know, you, you couldn't help yourself. Like you said, there's no, um, there's no consequence there either. You know, you're, you're taking that just the, the natural consequence of what would normally happen is, is interrupted as well. You know, the spiritual consequence, of course, but also, right. you know, that just the consequence in general. And so that makes it, you know, more comfortable for them, right. which is well, not what we're after. Exactly. And part of the, you know, my awakening and understanding that was when I looked at the, going all the way back to the introduction of sin into our lives when Adam and Eve sinned. Now, Eve sinned, but she was deceived. Adam sinned knowingly. So sin is still sin. Sin is still falling short. You know, missing the mark is what that means. So God is this holy, righteous God. And he brought grace. He birthed grace into the world when he, uh, when he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And what the people that I see that truly grasp that and have joy, and I'm not saying that they're not going to still have physical uh, problems and they're still not going to have some mental health problems. But the ones that I see that are the most free and truly spiritual joy have, have been able to say, you know what? I sinned like David, I sinned against you and you alone, God. And they are going to their father who is washing them, cleansing them, pouring out his grace on them. And I believe that's where Satan has kind of infiltrated the church with lies and deception and is hindering people from receiving complete spiritual healing and renewal because they're staying trapped in a mindset that says, I can't help myself. Right. That's true. That's such a good point. That's I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's another thing that I just really feel like nobody's saying that, you know, right. nobody's saying that. Oh, so good. Well, you don't want to, sound, you don't want to sound judgmental. And, and you know, that I'm so grateful because of having time to converse with these moms. And I'm also in another group that I work with some young ladies that are whose husbands are struggling with addiction. And, you know, my husband had, like I said, that tenure gambling. It took 10 years for the Lord to reveal that one to me. I wasn't in the dark. I knew something was wrong. I just couldn't figure it out. And it was affecting us in so many ways. Living in Las Vegas, you can only imagine gambling yeah. and uh, the temptation there. But but what I, I think I kind of lost my track, my train of thought a little bit. I just, did that. I just did that same exact thing the other day because I went off on another direction. I said, and I don't another know direction. where I was going with yeah. that. <laughs> 
where exactly was I going with that? But the beauty of talking to both these sets of women, you know, these groups of women is realizing that this, when this moment of aha comes to them, the burden lifts off of them too. All of a sudden it's like, wow, there really is a part of this that's between my husband, my child and God. It's, it's, a you know, that God is challenging them on who's in the throne, who's in the driver's seat of your life. Yes, you may still have these physical uh, addictions and strongholds and mental health problems that are going on, but spiritually, who is in the driver's seat of your life? Who do you worship? And if we can kind of not try to just get in the way real quick and alleviate that pain and alleviate that discomfort or that angst that they have of feeling some shame and some guilt and instead say, you know, I'm going to be praying for you about that. I can, I understand that's a struggle, but you, you know, God loves you and he'll forgive you if you'll bring that to him so that they can deal with the behavioral, uh, the behaviors that they did while under the influence of drugs. Totally. And we need to be careful on our side that we're not making the addiction an idol because I felt like I did that. You know, that was the most important thing to me at that point in my life is how do I get him sober? Which, like I said, little little did I know at that point that that (laughs) nobody was going to give me that answer. But, um, you know, it was an idol in my life. And so we have to be careful on our side, too, that that's not happening. It was really an idol for me. And I think because I grew up in an alcoholic home, I did feel an overweighted sense of responsibility along with my type A personality. Um, it, you know, it was a perfect storm. And especially with my oldest son, when it happened with him and it just wasn't that, I'm not going to say easy fix because it's never an easy fix. And trust me, I know that the enemy could creep in at any time and pull the rug out from you know, both of my sons that are doing well right now, and they could be, you know, just making excuses and one foot could lead to the other and they could be back at it again. So I don't ever take one day for granted. But I, but what I really believe the truth is, is that we have to work on our own hearts. And it's very difficult when you're in the heat of the moment and you're seeing what they're doing and you just think if they, if I could just help them, if they could just, if I could say the right thing and I could help them, we would all be able to go back to normal again. But the Lord is using their, their situation to shine the light on our hearts. And in my case, I got to that place where my brain couldn't turn off. You have to fix Kyle. You have to fix Kyle. You have to fix Kyle. It really played like a broken record 24 seven, no matter what I was saying, doing, going to work. I constantly could hear those words in the back of my head. They sounded like my own voice, but they were there. And one day my husband said to me, you know, you're going to worry yourself to death. And I told him, I said, you have permission to put that on my tombstone. She worried herself to death. I was like, dead serious. I can relate to that. Yeah. I, I honestly was like, you're right. Just put it on there. And, but immediately it was like the Lord just grabbed me by the nape of my neck. And he said, no, it is going to say she trusted God. Oh, I love that. And I was like, you're right, Lord. You know what? This is what this whole life is about is this relationship where we, we're leaning, we're pressing into you and trusting you. No matter what the outcome, no matter what the storms of life are saying to us, no matter what lies are being spewed at us, that we can we can say, I trust you, Lord, no matter what. And, you know, it was Job that said, I think it was Job that said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I, that's where my aha moment hit. That's when it finally hit me that 
Don, you're telling everyone else to trust Jesus. You're telling your addicted sons to trust Jesus. And yet this broken record is playing over in your head that you're, and I had even told my counselor, I will never be happy again. I just didn't see any way out. So when that decision came and it starts with a decision for any of you that are out there and you're struggling with this right now and you're feeling almost guilty that if you start to move forward and have some joy in your life again and some peace in your life again, that you're leaving them behind. Don't look at it that way because the Lord wants us to be shining lights in dark places. And if we let his light shine in us and through us and give us hope again, and we allow him to speak to us and heal those broken pieces in our heart and in our lives, we can't help but have a positive influence on the people around us. Absolutely. And, and I, that's what's important. Yeah. And I've, I've said recently on one of the other episodes that, you know, God's promises in the Bible don't say, you know, that God will do this, dot, dot, dot unless you're the wife of an alcoholic or unless you're the mother of an addicted child. Like it doesn't say that, <laughs> you no, know, it doesn't. that all of that is available for us right now, right here where we are. And I'm so grateful for that. I then all of a sudden, when I started looking and typing in help for Christian moms of addicted children and all of that started Googling it, it was the most interesting thing because it started popping up. All of a sudden, the help was there before I was closed down to it. I even remember when my when my middle son went to his very first treatment center, I didn't go to any of the family support things. Um, I didn't go to their family barbecues. I didn't go to any of the family meetings because my son was just going to get it in this next two weeks and we're going to get him out of there and we're going to go on about our lives. And I even remember the when he did relapse and I freaked out and called the doctor, He, the psychiatrist that was in charge, he says, well, Don, where have you been? Won't come to any of our family things, and I'm like, and he goes, he starts laughing. He goes, "Oh yeah, you were that family, right? The one that you know there was not, there wasn't going to be any kind of a relapse or anything." And he wasn't giving me a hard time. He just was saying, "I've heard it before." Right. And the one thing that I well, there's so many things I'm grateful for. I keep saying the one thing, but the one thing I am very grateful for is as I opened up my heart and I just said, "Okay." I'm moving forward and God, I want you to give me whatever's available out there to help me. And I'm just turning, you know, my life over to you and I'm going to put you back in the driver's seat. And those opportunities started opening up. And as I started telling my story, I started meeting people who I was looking at their life and going, oh my gosh, if she can be, you know, this happy and this joyful in spite of everything that she's been through, because her eyes are on the Lord, no longer fixated on if her child will ever, you know, get out of this or not. Um, not to say that, you know, we're ever going to quit worrying about them or not, maybe not worrying about them, but, you know, being concerned for them and praying for them, uh, but that we could just move forward. And, and I started to be able to give myself permission because I saw other people doing it because yes. the Lord opened the door for me to see other people doing it. Yes. And we and talked about that too, about how that's sometimes the hardest step is just that realization that, it truly, truly doesn't have to be like this because there for a really long time, I didn't believe that, you know, I know I thought that the only thing, you know, that like you said, I'll never be happy again. The only thing that was ever going to make me happy is if my husband got sober, like that was it. That was the only that thing that, that my entire life was hinging on and not even, you know, God wasn't even in the picture half the time. And that's, no. it doesn't have to be like that. It really doesn't. That's my encouragement. But it, it does start with saying, 
it's not going to feel right for me to start because I know that, you know, that you have a membership group now that you're going to be able to mentor and help some of these women who are ready to start to really work on themselves mm -hmm. and, you know, getting stronger. And at first it doesn't feel normal. Right. You feel kind of guilty. You feel selfish, right. you know, but the most selfish thing you can do is to stay in a pit. Yes. And, and just be down there and be miserable and not seeing the blessings that God has around you. It might be other children. It could be friends. It could be grandchildren. There could be so many things and, and people in life that are missing out on you. Yes. Because you're trapped and stuck and just fixated on this person who isn't maybe ready to receive your help. Right. Oh, that's such a good point. It's so true. And, you know, we do, we do fall into that. You know, I, I have been known to say that I wasn't a very great mom during that time, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I wasn't because I was so fixated on what was happening with my husband. And, you know, I, I fed them and clothed, clothed them, but they didn't get much right. more than that for a while because I was just so wrapped up in only what he was doing. And that's a great point that there's other people in your life that need you. There's other things right. in your life that need you and they need you to be you. Right. They do. And the Lord wants you to be all that he's created you to be. Yes. He, he's going to, he's going to give you divine opportunities to share his love with other people, to share hope with other people. Yes. And if you're trying to pour all that into the person who maybe at this point isn't ready to receive it, because I tell our moms that all the time. I'm like, your kids know you love them. Now the drugs may be telling them in, these, in their brain that's fried and the enemy of their souls might be sitting there, you know, shooting fiery darts and telling them mom doesn't love me. But deep down inside, they know mom loves them. Right. And so whatever you do, don't get on that roller coaster of trying to prove your love, prove your faithfulness. Just stay focused on the Lord, pray, pray for your miracle then get up in the morning and go on about the business that God has given you and the responsibilities he's given you. And at first, it's not going to feel really good. It's going to feel like you're abandoning them. Uh, but as you start to do it and get stronger, and all of a sudden, the the blindfold lifts. Yes. And then I look back and I go, what was I doing all those years? Right. You know, what, like, oh my gosh, I'm, thank, thank you, God, that my family stood behind me. Yes. Because I was as sick as my drug addicted children. Oh, it's so it's true. Me too. Work. Me too. I know. And I look back now and it's like, you know, like you said, you look back and you're like, how did I not see that? Mm -hmm. But you just, you don't when you're in the middle of it. And when my son would go to celebrate recovery, my oldest son, he always would get so annoyed because there were so many people that would get up and say, I'm a codependent. And he was addicted to heroin. Right. You know? Right. So he's like, He's like, what are they doing up there? I want to hear heroin addicts. You know, I don't want to hear uh, these codependents. But as he's been going through the process of his own healing and recovery and transformation, all of a sudden now he goes, mom, in some ways you were sicker than I was. And he goes, I hear these stories of what these women and men are going through that are struggling with codependency. And they, their health is suffering. Mm -hmm. They, they have basically neglect. Some of them gotten to the point where they've neglected all the care of anybody else in the family. They, you know, they've gotten so physically ill that they can no longer work. Gosh, and he's like, like the light bulb has gone off for him that this truly can make you sick. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and I, I said absolutely. So he even has more empathy now that he, you know, can see it clearly, and or more clearly because he's 
you know, God's given him compassion because he has not only gone to meetings that were only limited to people who were struggling with uh, substance abuse, but instead he has been in meetings where it's given him more empathy and awareness now when he listens to the impact on the family members. Yeah. And I think that's really important perspective for, Mm -hmm. for them from their side too, for sure. Right. Well, I am so thankful for you and your wisdom and the fact that you're using all that you've been through to be an encouragement and a ray of hope for people because, you know, it was important for me to have this conversation because I think that there's just such a small portion of this that's touched on, you know, in the mainstream. And there's so many other layers to it and, you know, on their side and on our side. And so I really just appreciate your insight into all of that today. I want you to tell the listeners where they can find you, um, social media, et cetera, as well as anything else you'd like to share. Oh, thank you so much for that. If you know a mom who's a Christian mom who is in the midst of deep pain and sorrow, and she is struggling tremendously and needs support, uh, support of other moms. We have a private Facebook group, Christian Moms of Addicted Children. You can look us up there. If you would like to follow me or subscribe to my blog, you can go to www.thefaithtoflourish.com. It's thefaithtoflourish.com because somebody else has Faith to Flourish. I put a little bun in front of there. there and I'm also on a social media, Instagram, and and a little bit on Twitter and Pinterest, although I've kind of let those go a little bit. But I'm on pretty much the the main the main ones. I'm you can find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here and just for all of the insight. I'm sure that you know there was a lot of light bulb moments for at least one or two people that were listening, if not much more than that, because this is such a difficult path, whether you're walking it with your children or your husband, regardless, there's a lot of overlap in, you know, the the patterns that we fall into and the struggles that we have. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm so honored to have been here. Thank you for having me. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick second to thank you so much for being here and for listening to the Married to Addiction podcast. I really hope that it's blessing you. If you are enjoying the podcast, can I ask you a quick favor? Would you go and leave either a rating, a review, or maybe even both on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find the podcast? When a podcast is new, a lot of times the ratings and reviews is what helps push it out to more people. And I would love to get this out to as many of as secret sisters as possible. And you could definitely help me with that by going and leaving a rating or review. Thank you so much for your help with this. And thanks again for listening.